couple weeks ago, Katie and I were giving Hudson, our eight-week-old son, a bath on Saturday night, and uh, he, we like to do it together, and uh, he sometimes likes it, um, and I like to do this thing. Katie, I said, originally I was saying we like doing this, um, but Katie corrected me and said, no, really, you like doing this. After we get, get done washing him, I like to take the uh, the washcloths and like get them all wet and like lay them out on top of them and I call it spa time because then he gets just gets, sit, gets to sit there and soak it up. Um, but I guess that's something I like more than Katie does. Uh, I think he likes it, but maybe not. Um, but on this particular night a couple weeks ago, um, Katie had gone out of the room, out of the bathroom, the living room, and was going and uh, she said something to me and I didn't hear. Her, so I said like like ah, I what I didn't hear you. Um, and my first question of asking that was pretty calm and normal. Um, but then she, I heard her talking more, and so I was feeling frustrated, and there was a little harshness in my voice. And I said, what? If you're talking to me, I can't hear you. And then suddenly I realized, oh, she isn't talking to me. Um, somebody else is here. Um, Larry had come over to drop something off, um, and so she wasn't talking to me. But then suddenly I was like, oh, did he hear me talking like that to Katie? Did he hear me being harsh with her? Um, to, and then I was, he comes back to see me, you know, bathing my son, taking care of him. And it's like I started feeling this embarrassed and ashamed. And I was like, did he hear it? Do I need to say something? Do I need to, you know, apologize to her to make it look better? And like all these things are going in my mind and I'm feeling ashamed. And all of us probably have things like that where we maybe have a certain way of acting when other people aren't present. Um, but then somebody else comes in and we're like, whoa, like it kind of puts a reality check on like that's the way I'm talking now I kind of feel ashamed you know that way I'm acting and um, we all have things that we've done that we're ashamed of or things that we're scared um, that if somebody else found out or saw us do it that we'd be like well what do they think of us how do they what do they how do they view me now and today we're continuing in our series in Genesis uh, the first book of the Bible and this is a, a book of beginnings the word Genesis means beginning and in the opening chapters, we saw the beginning of humanity's home. God created a good world, and his plan was, I'm going to dwell in this good world with humans. It's going to be a face-to-face -face relationship. But as we're going to see in this week, our home with God becomes the first broken home in human history. And Genesis is all about God's plan to put, bring us back home. And that's why we named the series Beginning the Journey Home, because it just begins it, and it climaxes later. Um, when Jesus comes. And today we're going to see two people who feel exposed and who hide from God and each other. And this is not how things are supposed to be. Genesis 1 and 2 describe a world at rest where everything is as it should be. But everyone who has ever read Genesis, those first opening chapters, um, ancient and modern, um, will quickly realize that world that Genesis 1 and 2 describes no longer exists. The world no longer feels like home where we're safe and secure and at rest. And if you watch the news, it looks nothing like a peaceful home. The news cycle of wars and political fighting and school shootings and people confessing to inappropriate sexual conduct are just a handful of the evidence that shows that our world is broken. But if you think longer, you realize the problems aren't only out there, the problems are also in here. You realize well, geez, I don't always treat people like I should. You realize, man, my, I have broken relationships in my life. I have barriers up where I'm hiding from people. And so you discover the problems aren't only in the world, but the problems are here with me and how I interact with people as well. Because we fight, we shame, we blame, we justify, and we hide ourselves from one another. And even more disastrously, we hide ourselves from God. And things are not as they're supposed to be. And this brings us to the big question this passage answers. The big question is, 
Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? That's the big question this passage is answering. Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? As we'll go over this passage in two parts. First, we're going to see um, the root of sin, and then we're going to see the result of sin. And as we do so, we'll answer that big question. So let's first begin with the root of sin in verses 1 through 6. Um, and there's a whole lot of time we could spend on verses 7 through 24. We're going to focus most of our time here, and we're going to do more of a scan over on those verses. You know, I could sit here for two hours and talk about all this, but um, as a mercy, we won't. So we'll focus more on verses 1 through 6. Um, you know, all these guests just talk for two hours, and you like, oh gosh, that guy. Um, but so verses 1 through 6, uh, we need to set the scene. God made this world of goodness and delight. That's how he... He talks about it. It's delightfully good. And then he makes man, um, and, a, and then he makes a garden for man to live in. And God's plan is, I'm going to dwell with man in this garden. My presence is going to be felt there. We're going to talk face to face. We're going to walk together. Um, and he gives man a job. He says, you need to work this garden. You need to keep this garden. Keeping is kind of like, you know, keep your post, like guard it. And God also makes a woman to be the man's companion. This is going all the way back to the beginning of time. And they were both naked. And they're not ashamed, meaning there's nothing they need to hide from each other. There's, there's just this total openness. There's no barriers. There's no reason why I need to cover up. There's nothing I'm hiding from you. And this is a picture of what our home is supposed to be. It's with God. It's with each other. And we're set over creation as God's representative. It's supposed to be ruling it and taking care of it like he would take care of it. But then God gives a warning. He says there's one tree in this garden from which they must not eat. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said that the day they eat of it, they will surely die. So far in the story, God is the only one who declares what is good. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so far in the story, God is the one who knows what's good. He's the one who sees his creation and he declares that it is good. And so this tree represents a choice. If they choose to eat, they're choosing to define good and evil on their own. You know what? I know good and evil better than God knows, and so I'm going to define it for myself. But God says, in doing that, they're choosing death over life, because when they eat of it, they will surely die, because they're breaking their relationship with God. And so that sets us up for where Genesis 3, 1 begins. And verse 1 in Genesis 3 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So here we're introduced to a new character, the serpent. And since the serpent is described as crafty and can talk, we know this isn't just any regular old snake, because I don't find any crafty talking serpents around in my yard. Um, but we may be wondering, you know, a talking snake, really? Are we really supposed to buy this? Um, but for the ancient readers, the, the snake was a symbol of, of chaos. They're this creature that um, introduces chaos to the world. And that's exactly what this character represents. It leads... God's world back into chaos. And crafty people um, achieve their aims by deceitful or uh, sort of underhanded or indirect methods. And that's how the serpent is, starts to lead Adam and Eve, what we learn their names later, this man and this woman, um, back into chaos. He works through lies and deceptions and half-truths. And the big question this passage answers is, why are things not the way they're supposed to be? And the first answer is, because we have been deceived. Because we've been deceived. That's why things aren't the way they're supposed to be. It's because we've been deceived. And disobeying God always 
starts with deception. It always starts with a lie. And everything we're about to read in this chapter is filled with deception. So how does the serpent bring deception? We'll look back at what the rest of verse 1 says. He talks to the woman. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's a couple ways we could take that question. But one of them is um, that he's kind of expressing this surprise. Well, you know, did God actually say you can't eat any of these trees around here? Like, they look pretty good, and he actually told you you couldn't eat any of these? Well, verse 2 says, And the woman says to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God created a good world with one prohibition. Do not define good and evil for yourselves. Don't define it on your, good, on your own terms. And this choice to define it on their own terms is represented by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so without even mentioning the tree that God said is off limits, the serpent has got the woman talking about it. She says, well, did God actually say you can't eat any of these you know, great trees? And then she's like, oh, well, no, actually there's only just one. And so he doesn't even mention the tree, and now the conversation has started. And so you see how he's crafty um, and he's deceitful. But the serpent's opening question portrayed God as overly strict. God really doesn't want you to eat from any of these trees? And then the woman corrects him, but his portrayal of God is like this party pooper who takes good things away from us, um, has already infiltrated her thinking because she says, well, no, we may eat of any tree except one, which is true. But then she adds, we can't even touch that tree. But God never said anything about touching it. He just said, you can't eat it. And so the woman has added more prohibition, more restriction than God originally gave. And then verse 4 says this, But the serpent said to the woman, Well, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now that he has got her in conversation, the serpent directly contradicts what God has said. If you eat of that tree... You won't die like God said you would. In fact, God doesn't want you to eat of it because he knows that if you do, your eyes will be open. You'll be just like him. You'll know good and evil just like he does. And so now the serpent has tempted the woman with the possibility of being like God. Like, here's this temptation. Like, God doesn't want you to eat that because if you do, you'll be like him. So it's like, that sounds pretty tempting. So he's adding temptation to this whole layer. But we know from chapter 1 that the woman is already like God. God created man and woman in his image and in his likeness to reflect what he is like to each other and to the rest of creation. She doesn't need to disobey God to become like God because she's already made in his image and likeness. But this is the deception that the serpent introduces. He gives her the lie that only if she disobeys God will she be like God. And the big question this passage answers is, why are things not the way they're supposed to be? And these verses give us two more answers. First, things are not the way they're supposed to be because we doubt God's goodness. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because we doubt God's goodness. And the serpent questions whether God really has their best interests in mind. Because he says, the only reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree, he says, is because he knows if you do it, you'll become like him. God's motives are self-protective. He isn't good. He's just trying to keep something for himself. He's not interested in your well-being. He's interested in his well-being. And second, things are not the way they're supposed to be because we doubt sin's badness. Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? 
because we doubt sin's badness. We doubt God's goodness, and we doubt sin's badness. Because uh, the serpent, he directly contradicts what God says about sin and disobedience. God says, you will die, but the serpent says, no, you won't. God said if they choose to sin, to not follow his ways, that it would be really bad. There would be disastrous effects. But the serpent says, no, sin isn't that bad. It's not going to have disastrous effects. It's not going to lead to death. The serpent wants her to eat from the tree. He wants the woman to disobey God. Uh, he wants her to do um, what God has said not to do. But he knows that if he just walked up and said, eat from that tree, it wouldn't work. Because what does she know about God? God is good. He's giving this whole place. He's made in his image. But then he, but he uses these backhanded ways. He uses deception to create doubt. And once she starts doubting, now it's like, okay, maybe I should do that thing that God said I shouldn't do. And if you think about your life and why you don't do what God says, you'll find these two doubts are almost always the seed. For, for instance, God says loving money will ruin our lives. But what do we do? We stress about money. We want more of it. We never have enough of it. We overwork to get it while to the neglect of our relationship with God and with other people. Why? Well, if we really believed God was telling the truth, that money will ruin your life, loving it will ruin your life, we would listen to him, right? If you, say, you, know, if you told me if you drive off over that road, you're going to go down into a pit and crash and burn. And if I believed you, I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to go drive off that road. But if I didn't believe you, I'd go drive off. And God says, if you love money, it's going to ruin your life. And so what should we do? Do not love money, but we do it anyway. If we really believed letting money control our lives would ruin it, we would not love it. The problem is that we doubt God's goodness, that he's really telling us what is for our own good. And we doubt sin's badness, that loving money will really ruin our lives. We're like, yeah, you know, God, you know, we're not really sure he's that good of advice to follow. And I don't really believe that it's going to ruin my life, so I'm going to go this path anyway that he told me not to. And every time we're presented with a choice to follow God's ways or a different way, we're at this crossroads. If we believe God is good and sin is bad, we will follow God's ways. But if we doubt God's good and that sin is bad, we'll go the way of the serpent. And many Christians would say, well, of course I believe God is good and that sin is bad. I don't doubt that for a second. But when it comes to our beliefs, actions always speak louder than our words. Because our actions prove our beliefs. Our actions are clear evidence of what we believe. And when we choose sin over God, we're proving that we believe sin has more to offer us than God does. And when you stand at a fork in the road with the path of obedience or the path of disobedience before you, and you choose not to do what God says, you're showing that you believe the path of disobedience leads to a better place than the path of obedience. And you have been deceived by the serpent into doubting God's goodness and sin's badness. I do this all the time. I admit it to you guys. You guys right at the front. Like, God says, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Was I loving Katie when I was harsh with her? No, because I thought that would get better results than loving her and being patient with her. And so I doubted, you know, the path of obedience would get me what I want. And the serpent has got the woman thinking about the tree and doubting God. And what does the woman do? Verse 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In chapter 1, as God's creating everything, six times we heard the phrase, and God saw that it was good. And then one time we heard the phrase, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
God is the one who sees and declares whether something is good or not. He's the one who defines good and evil. But here, after the woman begins doubting God's goodness and sin's badness, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now who's seeing and declaring whether something is good or not? The woman is. But she's declaring something to be good that God has said is bad. Do not eat of this tree, you will die. But now she's seeing and defining it as the opposite of what God has defined it. She's defining good and evil on her own terms instead of on God's terms. And seeing this and deciding um, that the tree is good uh, makes her desire it. And the big question this passage answers is, why are things not the way they're supposed to be? And the answer, another answer is, because we desire what we shouldn't. Because we desire what we shouldn't. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be because we desire what we shouldn't. Deception led to doubt, which led to desire. Because she doubts what she shouldn't doubt, she shouldn't doubt God's goodness, she shouldn't doubt sin's badness, but because she doubts what she shouldn't doubt, she desires what she shouldn't desire. She desires something that God has said that's off limits. And now another answer um, for why things are not the way they're supposed to be is that it's because we do what we shouldn't do. Why are things not the way they're supposed to be in the world? It's because we do what we shouldn't do. Because she doubts what she shouldn't doubt, she desires what she shouldn't desire, and so she does what she shouldn't do. She's not supposed to eat from the tree. She's uh, supposed to trust God's definition of good and evil and not define it for ourselves. But, and she's supposed to trust God and say, like, God, what you declare to be good, I'm going to see that as good too. What you declare to be off limits, I'm going to see that as off limits as well. But deception led to doubt, which led to desire, which led to disobedience. And even though her husband, we learn, was with her the whole time because she eats it and hands the fruit over to him, he's neglecting his responsibility because he's supposed to work and guard the garden. He's supposed to keep things out of it like serpents who are trying to instigate a rebellion against the Creator out of it. He's supposed to be guarding it and keeping it um, holy and pure. But he allows this agent of evil to deceive his wife and him right along with her. In these verses we learn that sin is the last step in a four-step process. And first the serpent worked deception into there and planted a seed of doubt and that doubt grew into a desire for what she shouldn't desire, which led to disobedience, doing what she shouldn't do, sin. And lies about God are the root of every sin. And it comes with tragic results. And starting in verse 7, let's look at the results of sin. We're going to cover these verses quicker than we covered those. And the big question, again, this passage answers is, why are things not the way they're supposed to be? And the result of sin gives us three more answers. First... Things aren't the way they're supposed to be because we hide from each other. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be because we hide from each other. Verse 7, they've just bit the fruit. Verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And this relationship, which was once defined by no shame and total openness, has now been disrupted by shame. Being naked in front of each other um, now makes them feel exposed, and so they cover up. And all of us are hiding things from each other. We're all hiding things that we're ashamed of, and we don't want anyone else to know about. And some of us are ashamed of how we look. Some of us are ashamed of our past. Some of us are ashamed of our education level. Some of us are ashamed of things people have done to us. Some of us are ashamed of things that we've done in our life or things we've done to other people. 
And that leads us to hiding ourselves, or at least parts of ourselves, um, from one another. And we cover up and we conceal in our relationships. Or we just avoid having deep relationships altogether because that person might find out what we've done, the thing that we're ashamed of. And this was not the way things are supposed to be. We have these two images that we can use to think about this. And they would be in full color, but we had a printer malfunction. So you just have to imagine a little bit. So this is, a, this is like the hardest word to say. A sea anemone. Did I say it right? It's like, say that ten times fast. You never could. Um, so imagine, you know, this would be all blue. The printer was kind of on a blue color. So imagine it's like all blue. And it's open. It's, and it's, and it's beautiful. See, then, oh gosh, I knew this would happen. Sea anemones. God, I don't even know if I said it right. Okay. But we just have to go with it for now. Uh, they're beautiful. They get these bright colors. And they're open. I mean, it's not to say this isn't dangerous because they kind of like poison things that walk by them so they can eat them. But anyway, but they look pretty and they're open. <laughs> Um, so imagine Adam and Eve, they're made in the image of God. They're these beautiful creations that God made. Um, they're able to reflect what God is like, his love, his compassion, his kindness, his patience. They are beautiful things, and they were naked and not ashamed. They're opened up. But see, anemone, when its environment is threatened, or you can find a lot of people talking about, like, oh, in my aquarium, it all it just you know shrunk up and closed itself up because the environment wasn't right. There's too much whatever, in the aquarium, they just kind of close up like this. They're no longer open anymore. You don't see um, the beauty of them. They're not open. They're closed up and they, because their environment isn't right. This one is closed up because the tide went out, and so now it's lost its water. It, you know, its home got changed. And so it's the same with us. When our home um, doesn't feel safe and we don't feel safe around other people, um, we should look like this, but we close up and we hide ourselves from other people. And so people don't get to see um, all the beauty that God has put into you. Of course, a lot of that beauty um, has gotten stained and needs to be um, reworked and remodeled because of sin, but, but still the beauty um, is there and God wants to restore it as we open up to other people. And so the first result of sin uh, is that we hide from each other. Second, things are not the way they're supposed to be because we hide from God. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because we hide from God. In verses 8 through 13, God comes to be with the man and his wife, just probably like he did normally. I mean, he knows what's going on. God knows everything. When they hear him, they react differently than they ever did before. They go and they hide themselves. They're ashamed. And, but like a parent wanting their child to explain what's going on, God draws out the man with a question. He asks, where are you? And the man answers in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. God answers him, who told you that you were naked? Did you, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then the blame game starts. The man says, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the woman, oh, by the way, you gave her to me. So who's to blame? The woman and God are to blame for what the man did. And then God turns to the woman, and the blame game continues. He asks her, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man blames the woman, he blames God. The woman blames the serpent. And the two people who have actually done the sinning, who have actually done the wrong, aren't owning up to anything. Does this sound familiar in your life um, as a parent, or even dealing with other people at work or neighbors? We do not like to own up the things. We scramble to find someone or someone else to blame. I yelled at you because you yelled at me. 
I'm harsh because I had a bad day, or I'm really tired, so that's why I'm being impatient with you. And if, and if I don't do this, my boss is going to be mad at me. Sorry I'm late, traffic was bad. Blame, blame, blame. Everyone else is to blame, except for the person who actually did it. Our actions and attitudes are always the fault of someone else rather than our own. We're afraid of the consequences, so we try to get the blame off of us. No, it's really them. They're the ones who should be in trouble. And the man and his wife were afraid of God, so they hid physically, but they also hid morally behind the other, other people um, because of their shame. Third, things are not the way they're supposed to be because our home with God is broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because our home with God is broken. In every way, the world is now messed up. God's good creation where he's supposed to dwell with us has been broken. And four relationships show this brokenness. And we can't go super deep into them. God, um, he starts off talking to the serpent. The first relationship is between the serpent and humanity. The serpent is cursed for his actions. But humanity's battle against the serpent is going to be constant. We will constantly be presented with the choice um, to follow God or to follow the serpent. But ever since the coming of Jesus, people have looked back in, in verse, first, verse 15 and seen the first announcement of the gospel. Um, when, because it says there's going to be one person from humanity who's going to crush the snake. Someday there's going to be this snake crusher that is going to come. But in doing this, he's also going to receive a fatal blow to his heel, it says. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to receive a fatal blow to himself. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes off in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, who, whom the Bible later says was the ancient serpent back in Genesis 3. And so Jesus, just like Eve and just like Adam, um, were tempted by the serpent. He goes off in the wilderness and he's tempted. But he's tempted and he does not disobey God, but he resists the serpent's temptation. He doesn't define good and evil for himself. And yet, he goes to his death like one who did define good and evil for himself, like one who did eat from the tree so he could defeat the serpent and free humanity from the serpent's clutches. So that's the first relationship between serpent and humanity that shows our home is broken. Second, it's the relationship between wife and husband. And there's just so much we could say. A whole sermon could be talked about um, how is the sin, how has this moment in human history affected all of our human relationships between a man and his wife. But God says at the end of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And God created, as we said last week, God created man and woman to complement one another through different roles in marriage, um, both representing what God is like to one another. A man represents God in a way that a woman cannot, and a woman represents God in a way that man cannot. They complement one another. And what this verse is saying is that sin has distorted those roles in the marriage relationship. And one major desire that a woman has from a man and a wife from her husband is for affection. Um, someone who will cherish them, make them feel special and beautiful and care for them. Um, and Katie had a, and I had a great conversation about this because like, you know, what do you think this verse, how does it like really uh, come into our lives today? And this was um, kind of where we landed. And it's a good desire to want someone's affection. It's a good desire for me to want Katie's affection. It's a good desire for her to want my affection. But this good desire was meant to be found first and foremost in God as the one who perfectly cherishes you, who perfectly makes you feel special, who perfectly cares for you. And when that desire for affection isn't first and foremost sought through God and is sought through a man, it doesn't go well. Now on the flip side, 
the husband is not supposed to rule over his wife. Yes, the head, husband is the head of the household, but the husband isn't supposed to see himself as a king ruling over the household. He's supposed to see himself as a servant cherishing, providing, protecting. When husbands think of themselves as kings ruling, that's nothing but pride. The Bible talks has a lot to say about how man is supposed to relate um, to his wife. And it never says, hey, you get to rule. Actually, the command is given to a wife to submit. And the husband said, you love, and she submits. It's never husband, rule, wife, you need to fall in line. It's never that way. And so we can't mix those up. The third relationship that shows our home's brokenness is between the man and the earth. Whereas before he's living in this garden, the guy's provide. God's provided all this food. Um, now that relationship with the earth has changed. His food is now going to come through pain and toil. And the woman's role as mother and wife has been disrupted. And the man's role as provider has been disrupted. And both involve pain and hardship because of sin. And I know that saying, you know, the man's provider and head of the household and all this stuff um, sometimes isn't like super popular these days. And I wish I had more time to just kind of flesh this out and give more nuance to it. But for now, we just have to uh, go over it um, like this. And if you have more questions, you can talk to me afterwards. And the fourth relationship that shows our home's brokenness is between God and humanity. In verse 20, Adam the, the man names his wife Eve. And God provides more suitable clothing for them. They have these little loincloths made out of fig leaves. He gives them clothes made from animals. But then because they've tried to take the place of God in defining good and evil, God sends them out from the garden. They're separated from God's life-giving presence. They're separated from the tree of life. And God warned, if they eat of this tree, on that day they'll surely die. But then we're left wondering, well, why didn't they drop dead when they ate of it? Was God lying? Was the serpent right? And he said, no, you won't surely die when you eat of it. Was he right? But we need to, here we learn what God meant by death. He meant that they're going to be exiled from his presence. That's the equivalent of death in this, to leave God's life-giving presence. And they chose death over life. That means no longer dwelling with God. And things are a mess, and we are the ones who mess them up. Our sin leaves us hiding from God and one another in shame, and our home with God has been broken. And maybe think about like an orchestra, and there's this conductor, and if everyone follows the conductor, it's going to produce beautiful music. But if some people are like, you know what, I'm not going to follow the conductor, you're going to have discord, you're going to have disharmony, it's not going to sound good at all. And that's what happened. We said, you know what, I'm not going to follow the conductor, I'm going to kind of play my own notes, that I think are good, and I'm going to leave out the ones I think are bad. And now what do we see in our world? We see disharmony and discord. We've been sent from God's presence, and we can't go back ourselves. We, there's no way we can get back in ourselves. The, the verse we saw, there's this cherubim with a flaming sword um, blocking, and cherubim is one of God's creatures um, that works for him. Um, but there is good news, and so you know, know this. You know, this, is kind of, this is a chapter of like, whoa, this is what's wrong with the world. Why isn't it how it's supposed to be? But the good news is that Adam and Eve, they have all this shame. The good news is that Jesus can cover our shame. He can cover your shame. He can cover my shame. Because of Jesus, you can come out of hiding. Because of Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of other people. Because of Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of God. Before the eyes of God, all our selfishness, all our pride, all our bitterness, all our hatred lies exposed and seen. And we should cower in fear and hide in shame. But if you've trusted in Jesus, you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what covers you. Jesus always did what was good, and he never did what was bad. He always said yes to God, and he always said no to sin. He always obeyed God, but he died the death 
of someone who didn't obey God. He died the death of someone who said yes to sin and no to God. He died the place of a rebel in our place so that he can now cover our shame. He can take his righteousness and give it to us to cover us. At the beginning of the Bible, sin enters the world through one man, Adam, and death through that sin. And then the rest of the Bible is showing how God takes the initiative to bring humanity back into his presence, to bring us back home. And Jesus is the better Adam, who was tempted by the serpent but didn't give in. And he's the one who leads us back home. And we see the depiction that home uh, is in Genesis is of the garden. That was where God's presence was, and that's so why we have this home imagery and the garden imagery. And you look at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and where, it is, where, the, where is home? God dwelling in humanity in a garden city. And so from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's this theme of God bringing us home so we can dwell with him. The problem is we still believe the same old lies today. We may, whatever you think about Genesis, and if you're like the serpent, you know, that, I can't believe that. I don't believe God created everything. Whatever you believe about Genesis 1 through 3, you can still see that we would believe the same old lies today. That God isn't that good and sin isn't that bad. And as long, long as we believe that, we remain in hiding. Some of us have trusted in Jesus to cover us, but we still hide parts because we're like, you know, can Jesus really cover all those parts? Can he really be that good? You know, my sin is way too bad for him to cover that stuff. Instead of going in the closet and putting on Christ's righteousness to cover us, we put on other clothes in an attempt to cover our shame. And Adam and Eve tried to cover their own shame with fig leaves, um, and that didn't work out very well. They couldn't hide with those. And when we feel that we fall short, we try to cover our shame with excuses and blaming other people. Or we just say, you know, I'm just going to keep this hidden away so that nobody can find it, nobody knows. But neither of those actually takes the shame away. It's still with us. Some people say um, guilt is kind of like getting hit, and shame is like the scar um, that's left when we, when we do something to other people or they do something to us. Only Jesus can cover our shame. Only Jesus can really take care of our sin, that shame that's caused by shame. When we look to Jesus, we see the ultimate picture of God's goodness and the ultimate picture of sin's badness. Because Jesus died on a cross for our sin, even though he was innocent. And God is so good that he took upon himself the rebellion for our sin. He took upon himself the death, the punishment, the penalty we deserve. That's how good God is. And sin is so bad that it required that Jesus come and die in our place. Jesus was exposed and ashamed, even though he did nothing to deserve it. The cross, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you see both God's goodness and sin's badness in the maximum amount you could ever see it. So I just want you to take a moment. Um, this won't be weird or anything, but just close your eyes um, and think these questions in your head. What are you scared to tell others? What are you scared to tell others because you think if they knew about it, they would never love you or accept you? And they'd never look at you the same. If they knew about it, you'd be ashamed. You'd avoid them. When you see them, you'd feel like they're always looking at you, and so you hide it. What is that thing? And if you're willing, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, or if you aren't, you can just pray with me silently. God, I know that my sin is bad, but you are better. I am ashamed of this thing, but I'm handing it over to you. I am trusting Jesus to cover my shame. Thank you for sending him. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. So you can open eyes again. But as we go through Genesis, we're going to encounter a lot of characters who are confronted with the temptation of the serpent. Even though he's not a visible character anymore, they all keep getting confronted with the same thing. Is God really that good? Is sin really that bad? How am I going to do it for myself? And as you saw at the very end of Genesis, um, they're sent east of the Garden of Eden. And so there's a book, oh, I can't remember the author, but it's called East of Eden. And so it's based on this, that they're east of Eden, and then you keep seeing people moving further east. And it's never a good sign because it means they're moving further away from God. They're moving further away from God's presence. And the way back to God is blocked. He puts uh, a, a new guard to guard the temple, uh, the guard, the entrance to his presence. He puts a new guard there, and we can't get back there. And the only way that we can get back there is through Jesus. So as we are going through this and we look at these characters who are struggling with these same doubts and unbelief and sin, um, we're going to learn how we can resist the temptation of the serpent, who's still an active character today, even if he's not a visible character. And we're going to learn how we can trust God, um, just like Jesus did when he was tempted. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this story, even though... It is difficult uh, to maybe hear so much bad news. We know that it's only when we hear the bad news that we're ready to hear the good news. So would you help us walk out of here and resist the temptation of the serpent? Would you let us not put our trust in him, but put our trust in you as the one who defines what's good and evil? Um, would you let us choose what you say is good? Would you let us reject what you say is evil and bad? In your son's name we pray. Amen.